Welcome to this session. I'm Alec Ryrie. I'm the Gresham Professor of Divinity, and with me today is one of my predecessors, Richard Harris, Lord Harris, who was Bishop of Oxford for 19 years, one of those people for whom retirement seems to be a chance to speed up. He is the author of, of over 30 books, most recently his book Haunted by Christ, which we launched at Gresham a couple of years ago, and now this book, which we are, are here to talk about today, a book which, as its title tells us, tells the story of the, the Christian faith in 30 images. In a few minutes, we're going to be looking at some of these 30 images. But before we start, Richard, can I ask you, you've written on art and Christianity before. What moved you to write this book now? Well, thank you for doing this with me, Alec. It's a great pleasure again to have this conversation. First of all, basically, we live in a visual society and Christianity has produced so many masterpieces of Christian art. And it seemed too good an opportunity not to try to arouse people's interest in the Christian faith through kindling their visual imagination. So that's really what I'm trying to do. Well. What I'd like to do th this evening is to look at a dozen or so of these images with you, people who want to see the rest of them will have to buy the book, um, and also a couple that, that didn't appear in the book. Um, and first of all, on the cover, you have Lucas Cranach's Adam and Eve. Um, she's there looking thoroughly tempting. He seems you know, genuinely unsure of what to do while the, the serpent looks over their, their shoulder. Why did you choose this one for, for, for such, a, such a prominent place? Well, I think, first of all, rather obviously, it is such an attractive painting. It's luscious. It's sensuous. You want to reach out a hand and pluck one of those apples off the tree and stuff it into your mouth. You want to stroke one of those deers. You want to embrace those bodies. You want to sort of roll in the glass. Glass. It is a wonderfully appealing uh, picture. I suppose one of the things that interests me, and you're as a historian of the of the period, would 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 be able to answer this. Was you know why did Luther uh, allow this kind of painting? Because when it is so sensuous, we know that. Luther and Cranach were, were, were friendly and the one approved of the, of the other's religious views. But it's, it's interesting, isn't it, how this should appear right at the beginning of a turbulent revolution, something quite so sensuous. Well, yes, I mean, this is made the, the year after Luther himself gets married. Um, you know, he's, he's, ah. he's very, very much a, 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 a man of the of the senses, although you know it has has quite a conflicted um, relationship with that side of himself, but it's 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 there very strongly. Um, it would be nice to think that this was Cranach's wedding present to him, wouldn't it? <laughs> you you do see images of Adam and Eve used a, a, you know a, a, around weddings and, and and on wedding furniture, um, so it's it's not impossible that he that he has that in in mind. Um, I, I, I love that sense of, of, of slight confusion about, about Adam. The, 
Um, yes. As as so often, the the balance of the blame is it look, looks like it's being placed firmly on the lady. That's right. But I suppose from a theological point of view, what's so fundamental about this is that it is uh, part of what it is to be made in the image of God that we have we are capable of making genuine choices, and those choices are good or bad. And sometimes we are pulled towards a bad choice. We're tempted by a bad course of action. And sometimes it's not always obvious. I think you bring up that point where it's a bit puzzling whether this is a good thing to do or not. And uh, as you say, who's ready to, to blame about this? And one of the choices that Cranach makes here um, is very plainly to give both of them navels, which is a, you know, an issue about the, 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 the creation. Were they created with the, the illusion of age, of having once been, been infants? Um, and th that idea of creation takes us to the the next of our of our images. This mosaic was was new to me. I'd never seen it before. Um, I'm very struck by the sense of of care and precision in it. God is is seated at work, almost like an artist at at work himself. Is is is, is that what you see in this one? Yes, um, I love mosaics, uh, the wonderful mosaics in Ravenna from the 6th century, and this one from Palermo in the 12th century. In the 12th century in Sicily, it was a wonderful multicultural society, Byzantine, uh, Norman, and, and Arab, uh, and it's full of the most wonderful mosaics. I think what's striking here, first of all, that this is, this is Christ, in his person as the second person of the Trinity, through whom and by whom and to whom all things were created in the first place. As we know that in Eastern art, God is not depicted very properly and sensibly, uh, but Christ as second person of the Trinity is involved in creating the sun and the moons and the stars. What I particularly love is that right hand uh, going up, blessing the universe, but also letting it having its own life to be created uh, is to have one's own life. God said, let there be, and to be created is to have one's own life, whether one is an atom, a molecule, a cell, or multicellular structure like ourselves. And the other thing I think which is striking about it is that scroll which he's got in his left hand. I'm sure that in there is written the idea of God's law, not just the moral law, but the scientific law. And I think that fits in with your point when you say the, the precision in this. I mean, the medieval church uh, medieval thinkers had a wonderful vision of God creating an ordered universe which was ordered from a point of view of morality and from the point of view of science and from the point of view of beauty. It, it is a, a, a itself a wonderfully beautiful image of the of, 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 of the creation and of course from the, the, the period that it that it has there's the earth um, at the center of it with the uh, um, the the moon and the sun turning around it, but it's on the sun that you know that um, God the Sun's own um, attention is is focused at this point. There's I think there's something 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 rather wonderful about it. Yes. Um. Let's move on because you know if we're going to to cover even a few of these, we need to rattle on through them. Um. To a, a very different image a very different depiction of of god from the from the hebrew bible um this encounter 
between God and Job, one I, I understand of a series of, of, of depictions by this artist um, of the, 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 the whole story of the book of Job. What struck me is how peaceful an image this is, that the book of Job is full of such extreme emotion. Um, and, and yet at this sort of critical moment of it, this artist finds this, this, this tremendous stillness. I think that's wonderful. Well, thank you for saying that. The Book of Job, of course, is one of the great classics of world literature, and its central part, which is in poetry, uh, is about the terrible problem of suffering and how you reconcile this with the belief in a good God. And Job's comforters keep telling him that either he's done something wrong and he's being punished for it, or God is testing him. And Job refuses to accept these answers. He, he says, this is just not adequate. He wants to have it out with God himself. And eventually God does give him a great vision of the glory of the universe, the glory of the heavens, the stars and every creature in it. And according to the book, God is silenced and kind of content and humble in the face of that. But for some of us, including myself, I've this is not a very satisfactory answer. God indeed is grander, you know, wonderful, wonderful. And we're all struck. But is that a proper answer? No, short answer it isn't. And what Roger Wagner has done, he's done this whole series in which Job has that vision of the universe. And then suddenly a very different kind of God, because this is Christ kneeling Job's feet and looking him in the eyes. And Roger is not only an artist and a poet, but he's a very, very good translator of the Hebrew. And he spotted a particular verse in the book of Job, which is given a literal translation. And the Lord lifted up Job's face. And there we have Christ kneeling beside Job, lifting up his face and looking at his eyes. And that for me is the, the only Christian approach to the how, problem of how we can possibly understand so much anguish in the world and relate that to a God whom we believe to be good. This is the, the Job who famously says to his comforters, I know that my Redeemer liveth. Absolutely. It's, yeah, I know it's, it's, it's a, a, you know, long been a, been a favourite of mine, this, um, the, 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 the God who replies to Job's questions with something that is not an answer. Mm. Um, and in some ways, I think that's. But the, are you the satisfied with that? I've never been satisfied with that answer, Alec. <laughs> I've never been satisfied with it. it. Doesn't seem to me to be right. But I am satisfied, with, so far as one can be, by this painting. I, I I do like the the recognition in that non-answer that the the, oh. the the neat pat answers to the question will not do. That, yeah, that, um, that I agree that, with you. That, yeah. that it, it you know, that, that the, the insight there is that we need to transcend these 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 ways of thinking of it. Right. Um, well, we haven't finished with suffering yet. I'm afraid we have we have several of 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 these, and I I wanted to to dwell on on this painting, um, which is. I, as, as I understand from your from your commentary of of Christ in the in the wilderness after his after his baptism, which is you know as as the gospel texts have it, um, when he is tempted, he's encountering the devil, 
And yet the scorpion here, and you might think of the scorpion as a, as a, as a symbol of evil, but almost seems more like a companion or a, or a comforter, and we're told that the wild animals also also waited on him. So I've, I've, I find myself unsure how to how to read this. What do what do you see going on in this painting? Well, I do find this a very deeply moving picture of Christ. It's part of a series in the gallery of, of Western Australian art. Uh, the, all the paintings in that series are wonderful, but this is my favourite. And one word rather than any other comes to my mind: pity one of the great words in the New Testament. Look at the way that Jesus is looking down on that uh, scorpion. It's sort of sheer pity, Kyrie eleison me, have pity on me, have, have mercy on me. And there's not just that single scorpion. If you look at his feet, there are scorpions all the way, all the way, all the way round. Who knows what's going on in Jesus's mind then, according to Spencer, but it is above all that one word pity which I think comes across, despite the fact that the scorpion can sting people to death. It it, it almost makes you overlook that. It's you know you've you've looked have to look at it a few times before you think, hang on a second, there's there must be courage there as well. That the that sense of 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 you know pity or compassion or companionship almost almost overwhelms the the sense. No, it's, a, it's an interesting point, your idea there's a companionship, because the, the way the hands are holding it is, is in a very kind of comforting kind of way, isn't it? Sort of not, mm. not full of angst or tension, but, but sort of surrounding and upholding. Yeah, yes, indeed. And yet it still has its, its sting raised. Um, there's a... Yeah, yes. If, 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 if you take it as an image of, of, of Christ's love for humanity. Yes. Uh, that's, it's it's, it's yes. not always know, I reciprocated. I don't know my scorpions well enough, but that's the sting raised, is it? Well, I, I don't know them terribly well, well either, but if, no, if I saw a scorpion like that, I'd be inclined to back away from it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we, we can't talk about Christ's sufferings without coming here to the the the, the great Isenheim altarpiece. Now, this is one of the one of the images which isn't in in your um, in your book, but I I, I I I couldn't let this opportunity go past without um, uh, you know, putting it in 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 front of you and of us all, and of asking you to 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 tell us what what you see here. Uh, to me, it's one of the the most terrifyingly vivid images of the of the crucifixion in the in the whole of. Mm -hmm. Of Christian art. Well, I'm very glad you you chose it, and I'm sure you've got a lot to say about it as well. You know, because it's your period. Could we just have a glance at the close-up of Christ's body first of all, which is the next one, just to to see that, and then turn back to this. See, this is absolutely horrifying. Um, the background, of course, uh, is uh, that it was hung in the chapel in uh, a monastery which looked after lepers, uh, and. When a leper came in, they went first of all into the chapel before this altarpiece in order to, to see whether God might perform a miracle. But if a miracle wasn't performed, at least the sufferer had the knowledge and the comfort that Christ himself had been through something similar uh, with him. 
Um, what is so interesting about this painting is not just the painting in itself, but its reception history. It was very, very popular in its time. It was virtually totally ignored in the 19th century. But then in 1920, it went on public exhibition in Munich, and it suddenly became a symbol for the self-identity of the German people at that time, feeling defeated and despairing. And more and more in the 20th century, again, it became a kind of sign of the self-identification of suffering humanity. And the great theologian Paul Tillich said it was the greatest German painting uh, ever. It is extraordinary the way that has caught the imagination or caught the imagination of the 20th century, because we're now in the 21st first century. It comes from a very, very turbulent period, as you'll know better than, than I do. The year 1500, about the year 1500, people expected the end of the world. 1520, I think it was, uh, we had the peasants revolt. Uh, St. Bridget uh, was having her visions, and this is partly based on the visions of St. Bridget and her visions of how Christ suffered. So there's a huge amount here reflecting the turbulence and the angst of, of that particular period, which, as I said, seemed to catch the imagination of people in the 20th century. It is an you know, extraordinarily sort of hyper-real depiction of, of, of what this sort of um, this, 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 this kind of suffering must involve. Your eyes is drawn towards the way his hands are, 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 are splayed on the, um, on, on, on the crossbar. Uh, there is something about the way that dwelling on, on this image, especially coming out of a time when suffering was, was not hidden away, from ordinary life, the way that that in much of the modern world we've contrived to to do it, so that it can be it it it, it can be tidied um, into into places where we can pretend it's not there. The the, the vividness of this um, confronts almost celebrates this this problem of suffering that has so often. Um, you know, troubled Christians down the, and, and other believers down the years um, by placing this this you know, e extraordinary you know, exaggerated and yet not exaggerated depiction of what crucifixion might actually mean at the center of, 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 of Christian devotion. I, I want to know what you think modern Christianity living in in our more, um, sanitized world might have to learn from these kinds of portrayals? Well, of course, it is a reminder that uh, this is the experience of so many people in the world today, experience of many people when they're getting older, when they're bedridden, when they're suffering from dementia, different form of suffering, but still a terrible form of suffering, and of course, in the world as a, as a whole. But I do, there's something, I think myself, that there's something uh, a little bit uh, out of kilter with the medieval emphasis on the suffering by itself. I think one of the great things about the Orthodox Church is they don't see the suffering apart from the resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And I think we've got to see it as, as a whole. Christianity is not and should not just be seen as a cult of suffering. It is also a belief in the resurrection and the and the presence with us of Christ through the Holy Spirit. I think it's time to, to move on to, to look at some of those images. Then. Um, this is um, 
I think the earliest of of the images that we're going to be we're going to be talking about something one of the one of the earliest in the books, in in, in the book. So this is a a depiction of the empty tomb. Um, and in in your summary of this in the book, you headline it with the words from the gospel: "He is not here." Um, I I was was struck by by that that particular choice. What what do you what do you see as the as the significance of that of of that phrase? I think first of all, it brings up the fact that Christian artists never tried to depict the actual rising of Christ within that three days, but never tried to show what happened between uh, Good Friday and the first Sunday, Sunday morning. So there is, there is a very profound mystery at, at that point. Um, unfortunately, uh, the West later on did try to depict Christ crawling from the tomb or rising from the tomb, which I've always found very unsatisfactory, much before the, the Orthodox depiction of the anastasis, which in the West we call the descent into hell, which seems to be a much more powerful way of trying to depict the climax of Jesus's resurrection over evil and, and death. But this, I think, is particularly interesting from a lot of points of view. One is uh, that uh, St. Helena, the mother of Constantine, visited Jerusalem after her son had be converted to Christianity and become the emperor. And according to legend, she found the place where Christ had been crucified and where he, from where he had risen uh, and built a church there, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is still there. And within the church uh, was built a sort of little uh, mini uh, rotunda uh, over the actual place from which Christ rose from the dead. Uh, and so w when uh, Christians, pilgrims came to Rome, came to uh, uh, the Jerusalem in the sixth century, uh, what they would have seen would not be the kind of place that we regard as a tomb or some empty cavern in a rock or anything. This is what they this is what they would have seen, uh, and what they would have been particularly moved by, I think, would be that little sort of bit of slab of stone across there, diagonally across there. The stone moved away, and the tomb empty, and Christ is is risen from the tomb and he's present through his spirit with all people in all ages. Uh, I, I'd like to move on to, you know, they, they say he is not here. I, I want to move on to somewhere else where he isn't. Um, this is, 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 is not really an image. It's, a, it's an anti-image. Um, also from the, the Byzantine Era, but it's one of the the very few surviving churches from the from the iconoclast movement, um, who you know, in the eighth century feared the the power of images, feared the the danger of idolatry. Which I mean, you've talked a, a, a little bit already about how Christians have navigated that business of of depicting the the undepictable. Um, now, I mean, you've you've written a book about about seeing God in art, which already tells us something about your your view on on this on this question. Um, but I I wonder whether you think this kind of of aesthetic um, and the, the the theological principles behind it have have anything to for, for us to learn from. Well, I think that the iconoclasts, whether 
uh, in Byzantium in the 8th or 9th century or whether at the Re Reformation, had an important point, of course, we always have to bear in mind that we have to uh, uh, avoid all forms of idolatry. We're not actually worshipping any kind of image. These are images which bring to mind the saving truths of the Christian faith. And of course, within the Orthodox Church in particular, uh, they are images uh, which help us to pray in a particular way with a sort of sense of the whole of heaven, heaven with us. Uh, so uh, I do think images are not only uh, important for us because we are visual creatures, certainly I find them very, very important. I find images a great help to prayer. Uh, but uh, of course, as, as you know from the great Orthodox theologians, and over the time of this controversy, uh, they regarded images as not just an optional, as extra to the Christian faith, but somehow essential. Of course, you can't depict God in himself. God in himself is totally unknowable and incomprehensible. But the word has become flesh. God has become human, has made himself visible and touchable. And because of the incarnation, we need a Christian art. I would put it as strongly as that. We need a Christian art in order to witness the fact that Christ has come amongst us in a way which we can see and touch and feel. I, I find myself quite moved by some of the um, of, of, of the Reformation era images, which can be very fulsome in their depiction of, of biblical scenes, but with sim simply the tetragrammaton, the Hebrew name of God, at the center as the, as the closest that, you know, using those letters um, as a, 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 a sort of anti-image, a way of, 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 um, of showing the, the holiness of the undepictable within, within a visual framing, um, much as this church here is, is rejecting all imagery except for the cross. You know that 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 extraordinary mosaic cross over the over, over, over the altar, which ends up drawing the drawing your eye towards it and putting putting far more emphasis on that than would be the case if it were crowded with image. Um, we need to move on to another resurrection scene. Oh no! Before that, of course, we ha we have we have another another crucifixion, a very different, very modern um a crucifixion i i found this one of the strangest images in the in the book with the the butterfly wings and and and, and the, the the different lines criss crisscrossing it and I, I i chose it to talk about mostly because i I'd, I'd like to hear you tell tell me what well i'm glad what, you what you see within well, it i'm glad you weren't quite sure whether we were going to move on to a chris uh, to chris <laughs> fictional resurrection because that raises the whole issue of how we hold the two together uh, I, I think there's a real problem here both aesthetically and theologically as to how we hold the crucifixion and the resurrection the crucifixion is all too real we know that suffering is real surely the resurrection can't simply be a happy ending tacked on the end, a deus ex machina, a sort of a God appearing, you know, out of, out of, out of nowhere, as though the crucifixion was, was nothing. And I think I love this by Norman Adams, because somehow you see the cross through the resurrection, and the resurrection is there without forgetting the cross. 
You've got the crucifixion there, because if you look in the bottom right-hand corner, you've got those soldiers, the helmets of the soldiers. On that same side, you've got the women wailing, reaching out their arms to the crucified figure. On the left-hand side, as you look, you've got a woman kneeling in agonized prayer. And yet, and you've you've got, of course, the dark there, which brings out the, the dark side. And yet, there is also those wonderful wings with the gold in the wings, the sun above it, and all permeated through light. So that's why I love this, because the crucifixion is not seen in stone, seen through the resurrection, and the resurrection is shown, but not in such a way as to, fit, as to forget the crucifixion. The light and the dark are, 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 are woven in together. Yeah. And- and, and yet the figure of Christ himself in the middle is, is almost the most insubstantial. Um, he almost seems to be, to be fading into the rest of less, more, more so than the, than the other, the well, other, that, that other, rather, other figures. Rather brings out the point wonderfully, doesn't he? he as it were, being transmuted into, etern- transfigured into eternity. Uh, it's a sort of almost, almost a resurrection taking place, as he kind of not so much withdrawn, but is is radically changed. Mm. It does bring to mind the 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 the, um, the phrase in in John's Gospel about Christ being lifted up from the earth. Um, that the crucifixion itself has 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 an, an element of glory in it, mm. Mm. Uh, at least when 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 looked at in from 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 this angle. Um, it. Takes us then to this this other sort of key resurrection scene um, of of Jesus saying to to Mary Magdalene in, in the the, um, the the Easter morning encounter in John's Gospel, "Do not cling to noli me tangere," um, and this is is Titian's version of of this, but the one that you've included in the in the book is this you know, extraordinary sculpture um in in oxford and there's another copy somewhere else isn't there yes in ely, ely cathedral that's that's it that's the that's the one that that that, that i know um, why do you think this particular encounter and that this strange comment that that jesus the risen jesus makes to mary magdalene um do not cling to me uh, is why, why is this so compelling for for artists? Well, I think that for for artists in the past, what was so compelling was the idea that Mary was trying to physically hold on to to, to Jesus, and the way it was interpreted in medieval times was, you know, that she he's no longer there physically in a way to be held on to in that kind of way. What I like about the David Wynne version is that he's focused not so much uh, on that clinging, but on the words that uh, the risen Christ says to Mary Magdalene, go and tell my brothers that I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. In other words, what he's doing is saying that they are sisters and brothers, and together with him, they are sisters and brothers within the life of God. What a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful sort of Trinitarian vision there is in that. And I think in D- David Whedon has caught this wonderful moment where everything is, is going upwards. I am ascending. Uh, I'm ascending to the Father 
the hands are going up. Mary is looking up towards those, those hands. Somehow there's light coming on it all. Uh, I think it's a wonderful modern sort of way of depicting this and uh, in a way which is rather more satisfactory than the ones which Titian did or Giotto uh, b before him, beautiful though they are, of course, in their way. It's it's beautifully photographed here with uh, the light falling on it, light and shadow falling on it in that in that in that particular way. Um, we've got one more resurrection scene to 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 look at, and and this is this you know it's completely new to me. This this extraordinary depiction of the of the supper at at Emmaus. I love the energy in this. Um, you know, from the the startled disciple who seems to have sort of you know, feet and hands everywhere as, as as his chair is falling over as he realizes uh, who they have with them, and then the way that Jesus himself again seems to be to be fading into into lightness. Yes, um, there's a very famous depiction of this scene by Caravaggio, uh, and uh, I think there's some evidence that. Kerry Richards, a wonderful modernist, uh, had this partly in mind and was partly reacting against it. Uh, but as you say, it's the wonderful way in which Christ is both there and fading, fading into the light and the wonderful sense of these two disciples and their different reactions. One, as it were, startled and holding on his chair and going back. The other, as it were, thinking more slowly and meditating what this is all about. One of the reasons I really love this is that it, it was actually commissioned by the junior common room of Teddy Hall, Oxford. Mm. Wonderful thing of undergraduates today in their colleges raising the money to actually commission uh, a modern artist. They held a competition. They got all the best artists at the time to submit paintings and they choose this one by Kerry Richards. Uh, there's, there's something about Christ's hands in this. I mean, it's maybe similar in the, in the, in the David Wynne sculpture. You know, he's, he, he, there's, Something about the the size and strength of his hands, um, I find, you know, very sort of compelling and and and, and oddly oddly comforting. Yes. Um, you 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 mentioned Caravaggio um, um, in the book very you know, sensibly with great self discipline. You've rigorously only allowed yourself one Caravaggio, um, and and this is the the one that you that you chose the conversion of paul this sort of you know, this moment when he's struck blind and it's hard to it's hard to know from this whether it's the 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 blindness or the having his eyes opened which is which is more more apparent here that it's as a extraordinarily vivid um as a depiction of a of a moment of blindness at least that's what i see in it Yes, and also uh, the kind of sheer terror of it. I mean, the way that horse's hoof is hovering above his face. Uh, it's, it's kind of, uh, as I say, there is a terror, an, an awe uh, in that. And of course, it has all Caravaggio's sense, Caravaggio's sense of drama and his use of black and white in order to bring that scene. I mean, it was the most extraordinary scene. Uh, 
St. Paul writes about it himself, and two accounts of it appears in the, appear in the Acts of the Apostles. And it, there must have been a kind of violence in it, because Paul, who was temperamentally, of course, a very violent man, as we know. Today, we, we would have called him a jihadist or a Christian equivalent. He, he was writing people, rounding up Christians in order to have them imprisoned, and a lot of them would be, be killed. Um, I mean, it takes an extraordinary force in order to overcome uh, that kind of person, and it was an extraordinary force. And I think Caravaggio gets this force. Uh, and as you rightly say, he's, he's struck, struck right, and you, certainly that is conveyed very strongly there. And, and there's almost a kind of claustrophobia to it. You know, I, my, I, I think of this as this moment on the open road, as, 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 as great open space and the voice from the sky. It's on a large scale. And yet this is very tight. You know, as you say, the horse is almost almost standing on him. The the, you know, the other figure is 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 right there. The sense of of of, of focus here mm. um, yeah, bring brings you brings you right into the scene. You're right, absolutely right. Yeah. Um, we're going to move on to something very different. Um, this is 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 one of the final images in the book, this astonishing modern woodcut, um, which is, as, as, as you say in your commentary, filled with, with Buddhist themes. Um, could you tell us about its title um, well, the, the, and, and why it matters? Uh, well, the title is actually my title. Oh, I'm right. Sure. Oh, I, 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 had, I hadn't appreciated that. Yeah. Well, I don't know what um, uh, the title was for Solomon Raj. Uh, I, although I corresponded with him uh, just before he, he died or with, with his son, um, I, I didn't ask him the title of this and I should have done. Uh, the strange thing about this is that I bought it in Oxford uh, about 60 or seven, no, not, I can't say 60 years ago, not, not, not that old. Uh, <laughs> and I, neither the gallery nor I could find any way of paying him at the time. He was touring Britain and he didn't seem to have lived. And it was only just before he died that I managed to get hold of his and to get the money through to him in India. But anyway, that's a bit beside the point. I think what is this such a wonderful scene? First of all, uh, is it is another kind of Edenic scene, another kind of paradise. Uh, and the, the fish in the seas, Adam and Eve looking very close and loving to one another, the angels hovering above, uh, the creatures on on lamb, all is a wonderful harmony. Uh, but the lotus, which dominates the picture, is in the East, of course, a symbol of the self, the true self. And the idea of the self is absolutely fundamental to Hinduism and to certain forms of Buddhism as well. Uh, and for me, this links in with the words of St. Paul, where he says, this is the mystery hidden through the ages and now revealed Christ in you, the hope the sign of the hope uh, to come. This is the mystery hidden from the ages now revealed, Christ in you. And that's what I think Christians should think of as our true self is the growth of Christ within us. And of course, Gerard Manley Hopkins has a wonderful poem uh, in those, along those lines called, when, which begins when kingfishers catch fire, which ends with the idea of Christ in everybody playing to the father through the features of men's men's faces. So now I'm afraid that's not Solomon Rogers' title. That is actually one that I chose because it, that's what it says to me. 
But then uh, anyway, I, I, I also hadn't appreciated that this is one that's accompanied you for, well, if not 60, 70 years, at least for, 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 for a few decades. Yeah. Um, and, you know, your, your story is, is, is woven in with it. I think probably after that, you're, you're, you're entitled to, to, to give it a title. Um, the final image in the in the book is, is is maybe a much more more familiar one. This this great invitation to to sit at table with the uh, with the Holy Trinity. Um, is this what you wanted to to stay with with your readers for the, for them to, to to linger on as they finish? Yeah, I never cease to love this, uh, Alec. I bought. I think this is a, actually a, a, a photo of the reproduction I bought of a very, very uh, cheap copy from a tourist shop in Moscow about 1981 for five rubles or something. Uh, and it's been with me ever since. And it now hangs the place where my wife and I have our, have our meals together. Uh, as I think many people will know, it's based on the story in the book of Genesis where Abraham entertains three angels and from an early age, the church has taken those three angels as a sign or a symbol of God about to be revealed as Holy Trinity. Um, and uh, it's very often called, of course, the hospitality of Abraham, not, not just the Holy Trinity. But I have called it here in my book, The Hospitality of God, because that is what, for me, it is all about. Not just the beautiful harmony of the three angels going around in a, in a circle, but there's an empty space at the table uh, and the viewer is being invited to sit at that table, being invited into the very life of God. Rather links in, I think, with the David Wynne earlier that we are being taken into the very life of God through, through Christ. Um, and of course, it, for a Christian, it reminds us of the Eucharist as well. And for me, it brings to mind George Herbert's very famous poem about love in which, again, we're invited to eat at the table, even though we may feel very, very unworthy. So yes, Alec, that is a, a picture I'd love people to to to, to stay with. Um, yes, I mean it, it. It does, as 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 we say, you know, nowadays in in sort of cinema or theatrical times, it breaks the fourth wall. Um, <laughs> we, we are we are, are are brought in to be the to be the fourth. I the don't fourth know that expression. Theater. Say it again. Uh, breaking the fourth wall. They call ah, you in the sense that that, that you know, on on a stage the, ah, the there's ah. a, there's you know a separating the stage from the audience. Yeah, thank um, you. I didn't know sense, that. You know we're 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 invited into it. Um, I I need to 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 ask you before we we finish. Um, you know you 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 set the number of thirty for for this. Um, if if you'd had a chance to to include a few more, are there any that you you regret? Oh gosh, any that's a good one. Well, well you right, you rightly point out that the fundamental difficulty was actually choosing only thirty, because if one chosen, you know, say Rembrandt, we could have held a whole book of Rembrandt, a whole book of Caravaggio, or or, or whatever. But what I wanted, I limited myself, as you already brought out, to one depiction per artist. I wanted to make a mixture of modern and ancient. I wanted to bring in Eastern and Western. Uh, and I, I wanted to use a variety of, of media, mosaics, as well as painting and sculpture. 
Uh, I'm not sure that I immediately think because immediately so many different ones come to mind. So uh, I think I might not answer answer that question. <laughs> well, no, you, you you might save that for 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 another volume of thirty yes, more. Yes. Uh, um, uh, uh, well. Uh, we've talked in this session about just just a few, a minority of the of, of, of the images in in this this wonderful book. Um, for viewers who've, who who would like some more, I can only recommend getting hold of a copy and and seeing some of the the other wide range of of of, of extraordinary images that are here and the. The, the theological and devotional reflections that that accompany each one. Um, for now, I think we we simply need to to draw this to a close. Um, there will be an opportunity for people who would like to to ask questions through the online um, Q and A function on on Crowdcast to 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 do that. Um, but to end the um, the the face to face part of of this evening's proceedings, um, can I thank Lord Harris very much for sharing these these thoughts and these wonderful images with us? Thank you, and, and thank you, Alec, for sharing this conversation with me. It's been very enjoyable for me as always. <laughs>